This is The Political Scene, and I'm David Remnick. With the record-breaking heat of this summer, record after record after record, we didn't need any more evidence of the appalling consequences of climate change. But now we have the tragedy on the island of Maui in Hawaii, a rainy state that rarely had wildfires until recently. So the question on a lot of minds is this. Will this hottest summer in recorded history be a wake-up call, an opportunity to put aside some of the partisan fighting, and begin at last to face the reality, as frightening as it is? Or are we just going to keep sleepwalking to further self-immolation? I'm joined now by a leader of the Conservative Climate Caucus, a group of about 80 Republicans in Congress. Iowa Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks was elected in 2020. She's an Army veteran, a physician, and she formerly ran the Iowa Department of Public Health. Miller-Meeks serves as vice chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus. Now, the leading presidential candidates in the Republican Party tend to downplay the climate crisis, if they refer to it all, certainly on the national level. On the campaign trail, Donald Trump has said climate change might affect us in 300 years. He used to say that it was part of a Chinese hoax. Ron DeSantis has said we're politicizing the weather. How do you feel about that? Are they wrong? What are you doing to get top members of your party to care more about the climate issue? One of the reasons I started speaking on the issue uh, uh, in, you know, 2017 and 2018 was because I didn't think Republicans were engaged enough in the conversation. I thought that we had, um, you know, uh, not been involved. And so I can't control what the presidential candidates say. I guess what I'm asking is, do they disappoint you by their lack of urgency? No. Uh, Again, I'm a member of Congress and we're trying to work on, you know, uh, bipartisan solutions. I think perhaps where there's difference among individuals is with what urgency people believe there needs to be change. I believe that, uh, you know, uh, having rapid change without having affordable, available energy is not a solution. We're trying to bring some pragmatic sense to the discussion of climate, environment, and energy. Our mission is to advance, I think, um, you know, uh, common sense solutions that allow our economy to grow, allow our economy to strengthen and compete globally around the world, but that are common sense solutions that afford us, you know, we have to have affordable energy. Energy demand is going up. It is not going down. I hear, it's you, going say, up. I hear you say repeatedly the phrase common sense. No one's against common sense. It's hard to argue against common sense. So let's, let's get that out on the table. Can you explain what the conservative approach to climate policy is and how does it differ from what we might hear from the Democrats? I, I don't think there are, there's a vast consensus on what's common sense policy. Is hydropower clean energy? To me, it would be clean energy. But yet you have a state, Washington state, that's trying to shut down their hydroelectric dams along the Snake River, but yet it would be clean energy. Iowa is a state where 50% of its energy is from renewables. 
Uh, now, almost 60% of our electricity is from wind. We are a net exporter of energy. We've done all of that without mandates or without emission standards. Um, I haven't heard uh, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle until recently talk about nuclear energy. Well, a lot of people, Democrats and others, have changed their minds about nuclear energy despite the risks. You support it? Well, I think if you're trying to electrify uh, an economy uh, and reduce emissions, uh, first and foremost, every uh, energy generation source should have a life cycle carbon analysis. So things that may be without emissions when they produce electricity may have a significant carbon footprint through their production to their disposal, first and foremost. Secondly, um, I understand the fear of nuclear, but I also think that the fear in some ways was unwarranted. Um, And uh, like many people, uh, we saw what happened at Three Mile Island, but were there any deaths that occurred? There sure were. There sure were at Chernobyl. Uh, Chernobyl, at yes. Fukushima. But at at Chernobyl, you know, bad reactor design, didn't have the right coolants. We have uh, a nuclear power plant in Iowa, Dwayne Arnold nuclear power plant in Palo. Even in um, 2008, when we had the massive flooding uh, that flooded downtown Cedar Rapids, um, the Dwayne Arnold nuclear power plant was a source of electricity for the eastern part of our state. Uh, was never flooded, was an excellent facility, well-managed, well-done. And what we're seeing with the small modular reactors, number one, that they're safer. And we certainly have other countries that have a track record, a great track record. So I think nuclear is certainly an option. You know, it's unfortunate that um, the Biden administration has taken offline uh, land uh, near the Grand Canyon, which is a source of a lot of high-grade uranium. Uh, for this country so so that we can mine our own uranium? How can you have domestic energy production if you're not allowing mining? If you want to have an electric grid because you need to have longer uh, power lines in order to take wind or solar energy from one area of the country to another area of the country, you need copper. Uh, The Duluth Copper Mine in Duluth, Minnesota, has been trying to get permitted for over a decade. Um, You have an Inflation Reduction Act, which on one hand says you need to domestically support uh, source minerals, but yet we won't allow permitting. So permitting reform, uh, liability reform when it comes to energy production, those are things both Republicans and Democrats agree need to happen to allow us to be able uh, to have a cleaner energy future. Um, Our mining practices are more environmentally friendly than the mining practices in China. Do you know how much earth you have to move in order to get the rare earth elements? Do you know how many children, uh, you know, read cobalt red, which is akin to blood diamonds, about children that are uh, uh, put uh, into mining cobalt? You know, I I think those things— I can't disagree with that. I can't disagree with that. Those things have to be brought into consideration, too. Congresswoman, the the Inflation Reduction Act was the most significant climate legislation ever passed in the United States. Why do you oppose it? I think there were were pushes toward, such as um, when the EPA uh, puts forward its guidance on tailpipe admissions, such that it's uh, pushing to have electric vehicles to be uh, 67% of vehicles on the road within about eight years. You know, those policies that mandate and take away choice um, are not policies I could agree with. Had they been individual bills, had we been involved, I think you would have seen that there would have been more participation and more bipartisan support. Let me ask you this. 
the fossil fuel industry gives campaign donations at some very high multiple to Republicans and some Democrats like Joe Manchin, far more than the Democrats. Do you think the fossil fuel industry puts its thumb on the political game in such a way that it influences things for the worse? Do radical environmentalists put their thumb on and influence politicians on the Democrat side? Are you going to compare the fundraising of radical environmentalists to the, the fossil to mobile and Exxon Mobil? My viewpoint on carbon-based fuels and liquid fuels would be as it is now, based upon the research I've done, um, regardless. Congressman, when you talk about climate change with your constituents, what's the conversation like? I just want to get a sense of what, what that back and forth is like. I talk to my constituents the same way I talk to you. So I had a town hall last night in Iowa City, where the University of Iowa is. Uh, it's a county that votes about 80% Democrat. Uh, the majority of people who attended were Democrats. The citizens' climate lobby was there. They had several questions. Uh, they appreciate the fact that I've gone to both COP26, COP27. I will be going again this year. Um, I'm glad to see that the International uh, Panel on Climate Change has finally recognized American agricultural's contribution to reducing emissions. Uh, we have farmers in our state that are doing truly amazing groundbreaking things, uh, young farmers that are doing uh, sustainable regenerative agriculture and training other farmers how to do it, mentoring them. I don't try to scare people or frighten people uh, or lead them to believe that the world is coming to an end if we don't adopt policies, which I know are going to lead to a lack of electricity, a lack of heating and cooling, a lack of an ability to drive your vehicle to work, a lack of uh, the ability to recreate and lead to higher energy prices and less energy. I, I guess what people would say who respectfully disagree with you from the other side of the aisle is that you talk about what's realistic. But given what we know about the destructiveness of climate change, the deaths, the property damage, the cost of rebuilding after disasters, that a gradualist, incrementalist approach like you're describing, however well-intentioned, is in fact not realistic. That's, that, that's the argument. Um, I understand your position, but I'd respectfully disagree. Isn't it important that people are able to drive from a job to a job? Isn't it okay for people to live in a rural area? And are we going to be able to have farmers be able to farm? I'm in an area where it has the highest unemployment and the lowest wages of the state. And you're going to tell me that I should be okay with $4 gasoline because you want an electric vehicle on the road? I reject that premise. You know, my job is to look out for my district and my state. How do we lower admissions while allowing the United States to compete economically around the globe? But if your narrative is that the world is going to end, I think it was uh, we were going to end in, uh, you know, 10 or 12 years. And, you know, we're now six years into it. Every time someone advances a narrative that it's a crisis if we don't do something now. And it, I think Al Gore said that... Uh, uh, what, we were going to have no Antarctica and no Arctic by 2013? The year might be off by this or that, but our Antarctic ice is, is plunging into the ocean. We see it on film. This is not some made-up narrative. I, I didn't say it was a native narrative, sir. I just said that every time we advance that there is a crisis and there's doom and it doesn't materialize, scientists and we as political leaders and people who are advancing policy lose credibility. 
Congresswoman Miller-Meeks, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You're so welcome. Thank you very much. Marionette Miller-Meeks is vice chair of the Conservative Climate Caucus, and she represents Iowa's 1st Congressional District. 